This is Structured Rambling, a podcast about ideas from literature and about literature. Episodes can focus on a single text or a theme from multiple texts. My name is Paul Sonsby. Welcome. Of the 20-some countries I've been to, the one I've been to only once that continues to pull at me, continues to draw me back in memory and desire, is Iceland. It's a truly unique place. I was there at the end of a trip across my beloved north of Scandinavia and the British Isles. I terminated the trip in Iceland, the terminus itself of the Middle Nor- medieval Norse permanent expansion, though... Um, intrepid Northmen would settle temporary and temporarily in North America at Markland and Vinland and also for longer at Greenland. But something about Iceland makes my heart ache. Its relative infancy, geologically speaking, its active volcanoes and glaciers, its black soil, its rugged, treeless mountains, its stupendous greenery, It's midnight sun. It's wild rainstorms of Reykjavik that make you feel like you're standing inside a salty car wash. It's charming and beautiful people with their colossal last names, quaint superstitions, impeccable fashion, and sometimes Herculean alcohol consumption. I adore Iceland. When I see it, In film, on TV, I'm drawn and captivated, sometimes even more than when I see Norway, the place I I derive my heritage from, a place I still have much family in. I love Norway, but Iceland is Norse. In fact, as time has gone on, it remained more traditionally Norse than Norway or the rest of Scandinavia, countries far more influenced by the continent. In many ways, Iceland is like what a Hutterite colony in Canada is to 19th century German culture. Iceland remained on the fringe and developed in its own way. It is the oldest sustained democracy in the world. And it became the memory and the record of the Norse world. One podcaster I like calls it the Indian call center of Scandinavia. If you don't get this relationship, here's the shortest history I can give you. Iceland was initially occupied by Irish monks. At some point, Norse Vikings discovered it. The Norse were sailing all over the North Atlantic, settling on the Faroe Islands, the Scottish Isles, the Hebrides, the Orkneys, the Isle of Man, the British Isles. Iceland became their furthest small settlement. Then, in the 9th century, when a powerful king named Harald Hofogre, the fair-haired, started unifying all Norway under him by force, a lot of powerful families fled the country for other Norse settlements. This led to the, the period called the, the Settlement Period in Iceland, the establishment of family-centered farms and a national assembly. Not a central government, but a democracy. Then, for about a hundred years, it was the Wild West, and somehow, after a bunch of blood feuds, they still had a population, and from Iceland, Greenland, and, a little while later, North America were settled. 
I think what happened next is very similar to what would happen in Canada and the U.S. 900 years later. When you start from scratch in a new place, you carry home with you. You associate with people from the same place as you. When I lived in Taiwan 20 years ago, I gravitated towards Canadians, Aussies, Kiwis, and some Americans. The Icelanders traced their origins to Norway, and in preserving their histories and culture, they also preserved Norway's. Iceland grew to be more traditional, more traditionally Norse, than Norway, which evolved as a typical European continental kingdom. Iceland, as a faraway island, had no outside influence, so it grew, it grew differently. Then came the 12 to 1300s. Settlement Iceland wasn't literate or Christian. By 1250, it had become both. But for 2.5 centuries, it kind of was in a flux. And so in this period, Icelanders began writing down their oral traditions and stories and those of their heritage. From this, you get the Icelandic sagas, one of the great world literatures. You also get some of the only Norse myth written down which, sadly, we only have the barest sample of compared to, say, Greek myth. And the biggest name in Icelandic writers is the subject of this podcast episode, Snorri Sturluson. Snorri is probably the most famous Icelander up until, well, Bjork. He was a writer, a poet, a politician, a powerful figure, a rabble-rouser, evidenced by his murder in 1241. He gave us two of the most vital works of Norse culture, the Prose Edda and Heimskringla, and many feel he also wrote the great Igils saga. If that's true, he is, without a doubt, the most important scholar and historian of the post-Viking Age writing about the Viking Age. Today, I'm going to be describing his two most famous works because I don't play in speculation, so I'm not going to talk about Egil's saga. Those famous works are Heimskringla and the Prose Edda. Let's start with the second one first. Now, I was mentioned how we really don't have much Norse myth written down. It's amazing to me that the Aesir, gods like Thor and Odin and their adventures, are as popular and as studied as they are because we have so little. It's very clear that there are many other gods and stories, but those have all been lost. So what we do have is precious. What we have is mostly from a singular document of poems um, written hundreds of years after the Viking Age. This is called the Codex Regius, the King's Book. But its common name is the Poetic, or Elder Edda. It's a little bit hard to tell how true it is to the originals. The stories of Odin and Baldur and Ragnarok for sure show, show a heavy influence of Christianity. When Snorri was writing in the early 17th century, he may have had access to more tales and poems, and so we rely heavily on his composition. This text, called the Prose, or the Younger Edda, is like a, a, it's like a, a Norse primer. It's got four parts. Um, one, a, a prologue about the myth, um, then a count of the gods called the Gilfaginning, and then two parts dedicated to the rules of very complex Old Norse poetry called uh, um, a Skald is a poet, and Hatatal. 
Why this book is so significant is the only other written account we have of the Norse gods from even close to the time period. It balances out and adds to many of the Elder Edda stories, and it shows a lot of the world's cosmology. The second part matters because poetry is vital to the ancient Norse. Skalds were important figures, and heroes, warriors, and gods would be judged on their ability to compose poetry. In Heimskringla, the sagas, and all other Norse writing, there's always bits of verse. This is usually the oldest material in the text. Um, are, it's acting as, as something like a sort of footnote to a primary text. Think of how most people believe that if there is anything historical in the Bible, for sure the sayings of Jesus are probably historical things that were passed around before being written down. In the Prose Edda, Snorri helpfully explains poetic techniques such as the kenning, which can be really hard to translate. This is a weird two-term metaphor where you call the ocean the whale road or an axe the skull splitter. These two texts, the Poetic and Prose Eddas, are essentially our main sources for all Norse myth. Snorri helps flesh out one of the great pagan religions of the world. He also was a politician, a poet, and an opportunist. The biggest thing he ever wrote was a piece of pure pedantry, Heimskringla, the lives of the Norse kings. This massive text takes sources oral and historical and mythical and legendary and combines them, tracing the lives and deeds of the Norse kings of Norway from prehistory down to the end of the Viking Age. Each section is dedicated to a particular king, and I've read pieces of it before, but recently I read it all as one, and that's the main inspiration of this episode. The most interesting four parts of Heimskringla are two tales about a guy named Harold, two different Haralds, and two tales about a guy named Olaf, two Olafs. Viking Norway's four most significant kings, who also saw the most dramatic events. We have Harald Hofogra, the fair-haired, um, the guy I already mentioned already, who united all Norway under him because... Uh, and because people saw him as a tyrant, they left and settled Iceland. You have Olaf Tryggvason, the first king to force Christianity on his country, though he died in battle over it. What's really cool is during Olaf's reign, Leif Erikson discovered and settled North America. This means oral accounts of the New World existed for at least 400 years before Columbus sailed. And written accounts were in Iceland 200 years. There's even a very sketchy claim that Columbus sailed to Iceland on a fact-finding mission. The section of St. Olaf's saga is by far, this is the other Olaf, is by far the biggest part of Heimskringla altogether. Because of his sainthood, Olaf is one of the more intentionally and internationally uh, raised characters, because he's a saint, and he's, he's internationally recognized Norwegian king. Heck! Rose from the Golden Girls comes from a Minnesota town named after him. St. Olaf succeeded where Olaf I failed by making Norway Christian. The first Olaf, Tryggvason, tried to bully his country into the new faith, but most who came to it were sycophants only, and when he died in battle, he hadn't achieved permanent success. Many folks returned to their pagan ways. Um... 
Saint Olaf killed harder, and yet he too was killed at the fa- famous Battle of Stiklestad. However, he'd created more converts, and it was his death that sealed the deal. He became a martyr. His corpse supposedly didn't rot, his hair and fingernails continued to grow, and his body was moved to Nidoros Church in what is now Trondheim. Uh, Today, it is one of Christendom's most important cathedrals. If you go on a pilgrimage, there are four points that form a basic cross. Jerusalem is the far right, uh, and uh, Nidoros, uh, Trondheim, is the top point of the cross. Harold Tordrada. The last real Viking king was St. Olaf's younger half-brother, a giant of a man. His exploits are as much embellished legend as anything. Um, after fleeing the Battle of Stiklestad at only the age of 16, he traveled to Russia and eventually served in the Norse Varangian Guard in Byzantium. Um, these are the personal bodyguards of the Byzantine emperor. He was so successful that he made the emperor jealous, so he returned to Norway and became its sole ruler eventually. In 1066, he was one of three kings who tried to conquer Britain. He conquered York, but was killed shortly after at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. You can't really consider Heimskringla history, but it's the closest thing there is to a primary source on the lives of the Viking Norwegian kings. Plus, There's all of this embedded poetry that is obviously much older, and so it comes from an even more primary source. Without a 13th century Icelander, Norway would have far less info uh, of its most famous time period. As well, just as in the Icelandic sagas, it's not just the biography that matters uh, in Heimskringla, but also you get glimpses of culture, customs, pagan religion, and conversion. Now, as I've said, all this has to be taken with a serious dash of salt. It was written hundreds of years after the fact. Many of the stories are legends and folk tales. Many, Huh. I said serious dash of salt, and Siri looked up a dash of salt. I guess I just should have stayed with a grain of salt. I'm going to leave that in. That's cute. Uh, anyways, it was written uh, way later, legends and folktales, and many involve magic and miracles. Still, it's a lovely resource. Heimskringla is also unique for containing in modern editions dozens of images based on wood carvings. If you travel to Norway, many places you go, you'll see amazing wood reliefs of myths, legends, and pieces of history. Oslo's Rodhus, a sort of city hall, has a, uh, a bunch of these leading up to its massive uh, entrance. Inside, there's this whole room dedicated to Harald Hadrada. One of my cousins in Norway has inherited a set of chairs from his mother, and on the backrest of each of these wooden chairs is one of the wood cuttings that I recognize from Heimskringla. Uh, my cousin Ivan was uh, impressed with my knowledge in recognizing Well, no. He called me a nerd. But still, he was surprised that I noted it. But my Norwegian family has long recognized me as a Viking fanboy. They roll their eyes and they carry on correcting my pronunciation. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that Snorri Sturluson also wrote Egil's saga, like I said. One of the greatest of the Icelandic sagas. If this is the case then he is without a doubt the most important medieval historian of the Viking era. But I'd argue he already is even without it. 
Further down the line, I might hit Icelandic sagas proper, especially the bigger ones like Egil's Saga or Njal's Saga. Suffice to say that if you study the texts about Viking Norway and Iceland, Snorri Sturluson's name, Snorri Sturluson's name, is the most important you'll discover. He wrote about violent people and himself was assassinated in a cellar on September 22, 1241. But all that does is add to his legend. Many of my heroes are writers. And the great Snorri, at least as a writer, is near the top of the list. I want to thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed my podcast, please feel free to give me a rating and review. Episodes come out at the beginning and middle of pretty much every month. Have a great day.